Well, you know I'm not a good interview subject, so... Oh, I wouldn't say that. The person who's just described himself as not a very good interview subject, folks, is Richard Maxwell, uh, who is here for the Cultural Studies podcast. Hello, welcome everyone. It's Toby Miller. You can follow my adventures at tobymiller.org. And we are in South Pasadena at Buster's Cafe. <laughs> Rick, it's very good to have you here. Thanks, Toby. Tell us what you're doing these days, what you're up to. You mean in my research, or you mean as, as a bureaucrat in the City University of New York? I, I think that probably both of those would be of interest to people. Why don't you start with a bureaucrat in the City University of New York? Well, as your listeners may know, the City University of New York is the largest urban public university in the United States. We have about 400,000 regular students and a few hundred thousand uh, part-time students uh, distributed among a couple dozen colleges. I work at Queens College in the lovely borough of Queens where we have about 20,000 students uh, attending a 77-acre uh, leafy campus. It's very nice, actually. Um, and uh, we've been uh, struggling with uh, a major push from the central administration to establish a new core general education across the university system and many 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 of my colleagues are very upset about the top-down nature of the uh, of the initiative and the the way that the central administration is completely ignoring every every statement the faculty has issued in opposition to this new initiative so that's been the you know one of the main problems we're facing there otherwise it's just uh, the usual you know scheduling and making sure we get the students through. Now, how, for about 50% of listeners are outside the United States, uh, and for many of them, the liberal education model of the undergraduate degree here will be probably unknown or mysterious. Mm -hmm. Could you explain roughly that model and explain how these reforms either fit into it or differ well, from it? The central administration has not been explicit about this, but there's a, a movement afoot in the United States to um, create a stratified system of, of public education in which we find some of the um, colleges uh, that aren't part of the elite, the Ivy Leagues and the, and the big public universities, um, being uh, reimagined as serving uh, uh, more of a corporate idea, I guess you'd say, of what the college education should uh, provide to students so that um, the train going by is probably going to disturb that. The gold line of the wonderful metropolitan transportation system of sunny Los Angeles. Well, what, I, what I was saying was that there's a certain kind of technocratic view of what students should be learning. And um, I mean, it could be similar to the German model where students will be tracked in, in K through 12, identified as either going to the type that's going to make it for higher education or the type that should go into the trades and then be siphoned off into colleges which have a much more vocational orientation. Now nobody said this explicitly, but the way that the gen ed reforms it look to me is that they really want to provide educated uh, workers what they call uh, human capital, as you know, for uh, the businesses in the New York area. And I think it's, I think it's simple as that. Right. Um, and gen ed, by the way, stands for general education. General education. And these are, in a sense, fundamental requirements that anybody getting the undergraduate degree right. must obtain. Now, if they had been more explicit about that, you know, there are certain things to appreciate about the push to kind of make it a little bit easier for students to get through, make it less demanding. Uh, just to give you an example, the uh, right now, the way the proposal stands, there's no uh, central requirement to learn a, uh, a language other than English. And um, which really goes against, I mean, decades and decades of, of what we call liberal arts education in the United States. Uh, the preparation of students to, uh, to be global citizens, for example, is rhetoric that you hear a lot in, uh, in these gen ed, in general education uh, discussions. It sort of makes no sense if you if you want them to be citizens of the world if you don't teach them languages of the world. Um, the other uh, issue that's really disturbing my colleagues in the sciences is, is the elimination of the um, laboratory work that usually comes along with a, a, a course uh, in in sciences. Basic courses in sciences uh, always traditionally have had an additional three or four hours of laboratory work. Um, so what you see is a, is an interesting thing. You have. You have scientists teaching young people to become scientists who will have to tell those students, if they get the degree in CUNY, 
perhaps they won't be qualified to go on to graduate school in science unless they actually do extra work while they're in the CUNY system. We've said all of this to the central administration, and they've basically said it's not true uh, that they'll make it work. And you know, I guess we'll wait and see. But uh, it's, it's the biggest controversy right now out in the city university system. Now, uh, for you, as somebody who comes from the, the classic liberal arts education, <laughs> yeah, right. Well, do you? Is my question. I mean, are you a product of that? Well, I, I don't know. I, I understand you spoke to uh, uh, George Udis last week, and uh, he and I both agree that we're kind of accidental scholars. <laughs> If it weren't for the fact that we ended up taking a class here or there, we might not have taken this path in life. And in my case, it's 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 interesting that I you know that I that I got to this. I mean, I consider myself an intellectual, and of course, this is one of the few places where you can actually apply your trade as an intellectual. I mean, sure. South Pasadena. South Pasadena. <laughs> you know, I mean, what are the choices? You know, you brought me out here on the train, and I'm I'm talking on the street for crying out loud. Nobody's put a single dime or quarter on the table, uh, so this is obviously not paying off. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I, I really did kind of stumble into it. I went to, I went to college, but I quit uh, in my, after my sophomore year, and I took off and lived in Spain for four years. I, I thought maybe I'd live there forever, and, you know, I was a house painter, as you know. Um, now, sophomore year, by the way, is second year. Second so year, the end yeah. of the second, so exactly halfway through, halfway through the U.S. undergraduate degree, which yeah. is four years full-time. Right, and, you know... I was one of those college students that wasn't sure that college was for me. That's, you know, yeah. the kind of yeah. track that you see a lot of students go through wondering whether it's, you know, it's the right choice. And, and by the way, that was the, uh, the mid-70s, mid so uh, it was a time when things in the U.S. economy were changing, uh, and I wasn't quite aware of those changes really, but I knew something was, was changing, and, I, and I, I didn't see the same future that we saw for higher education or for college graduates that we saw in the 60s, for example. Uh, you know, our professors were, were leading a comfortable life, doing really interesting work, and, and things were already changing. At that moment, already changing towards this corporate model that I was talking about, which is really being put into place in, you know, in a forceful way now in the United States. Little by little, it changed. But my story was, you know, I was in Spain and, and I was going, I was there during the transition to democracy. It was a very important time, and, and I was young, and you know, maybe I, I could stay in Spain. It just didn't work out that way. And, and when I came back, I finished my degree, and um, and again, I didn't know what I was going to do after finishing my degree. I, and, I moved to Wisconsin with, with my my then uh, partner, and and we um, we established a home there. And after a year, I I, I I signed up for the communications program at the University of Wisconsin. So it really was again just one of those accidents of history. Yeah. And so when you came back to college, you would have been let me get sort of 22, 23, maybe. I'm, I'm just asking because in many countries. There's nothing strange about having somebody who's 23 who is in the third year of their studies. Right. But in the United States, you do stand out a bit, don't you? Well, no, not well. Not, I, not so I, was, much. I was relatively young because I began college when I was 15. Oh, oh I didn't realize. Okay, yeah. so in fact, you were the same age as everybody else. Well, but I. It's, a, it's complicated, okay? I, I hated yeah. high school. I, I wanted to get out of high school. Right. I, I had an opportunity to go to a, a private college that wasn't that expensive. I went for a year. The grades weren't great. I mean, right. you know, I was 16. Right. Didn't know what college was. Took a lot of art classes. And uh, and then I, I I didn't go back the next year because of uh, I didn't have the family funding for it. And uh, I had I had two choices. This I means can, Dad turns off yes, the spigot, right? The family scholarship <laughs> was turned off. The grade the grade point average wasn't uh, high enough. Right. I had two choices: go back to high school <laughs> after having a year of college. Right. I don't or, think many of us are going to do that. No. Or lie about my age and get a job as a grown-up somewhere. So I did. I lied about my age and worked in a factory for. It's not so hard, by the way. Rick is uh, six feet five in the imperial measure. Yeah. So uh, he probably was a little bit taller than most sixteen-year-olds. Yeah. Although not fully grown. Maybe. Perhaps. You know, I'd, I'd lower my voice when I was you know, looking for work. So you did the Barry White thing. I did the Barry White thing. Yeah. In fact. It's very hard to tell Barry and Rick apart until Barry sadly passed oh, away, since which it. time it's obvious. Stop it. You know, he, uh, there was a wonderful NPR interview. Did you know I worked in a golf club factory? I made golf I clubs. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. I, was the, I was the guy who drilled the hole in the, in the steel heads. This is in San Diego, folks, in the days when San Diego was a major manufacturing place. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, I guess. This is out at the outskirts of San Diego in a little town called Escondido. J.J. Kale fans will recognize the name. Wonderful NPR, National Public Radio interview with Barry White a couple of years before he died, in which he tells us about how his brother, when wanting to get dates with girls from their high school, would ask Barry to call them up so that Barry's voice would say, uh, this is Leon, or whatever yeah, Barry's right. name yeah. And of course, every woman, every young woman would say, sure, gosh, I, I never knew you... You sounded like that. What a voice. So he'd get all these fantastic dates for his brother. <laughs> what he received in return, I don't know. Hey, I thought this interview was about me. <laughs> As I said, distinguishing you and Barry White, not always the simplest thing. Right. So, uh, going back to the history, so when you returned to University of California, San Diego, was the public university where right. Rick did his undergrad, you actually fitted in pretty well. Then, you, <laughs> having come back from Spain, then you go to Madison with your then partner, and after a year there, you start graduate school. So what turned you on to communications? Well, you have to, you have to rewind to uh, my time at UC San Diego. Uh, I, I had my best friend at the time said, you have to take this class with this guy named Herb Schiller. It's, it's, it, he, he'll blow your mind, you know. So, what well, do I know, you know. It's, I hadn't even declared a major at that point. Yeah. Yep. So I go into this lecture hall and here's this, here's this uh, amazingly entertaining, brilliant guy who will pull, he would pull, I don't know if you ever saw him speak, but he would pull a, P, uh, P, a news item from the New York Times, and it would be about something, uh, you know, Kodak looking into digital technologies or something. And then he would talk about the background for the preceding 100 years to explain the development of these technologies and how they're going to market these these new technologies, create mar create new markets for them, monopolies, blah blah blah. And he would just uh, you didn't know all this stuff, and he would do it without a single note. And he'd walk out of there going, wow, I don't know what I just learned, but it sure was fun, and I want to go back for more. And uh, it was a really exciting time to be around uh, Herb, Herb Schiller because of the work he was doing in international communication, and he was uh, you know, quite the, quite the uh, radical on campus as well. You know, the story uh, about Herb is that the students brought Herb to that campus after the um, takeover of the... Uh, of the uh, college in the, in the 1960s, and they demanded that a communications program be established at UC San Diego. And um, they interviewed Herb and, and brought him in to, uh, to sort of lead the, the creation of this program. And it's very complicated, but I did write a book about it, and there's a chapter on, on that history. Yes, this is, Rick is referring to Herbert I. Schiller, whom many folks will have heard of, one of the founders of Media Imperialism Critique. Yes. Uh, Rick wrote a wonderful uh, book uh, about Herb. And one of the things, just to show for those people who may not be familiar with this reputation, how international he was. When I was, I think, 12 years old, my parents and I had moved back to Britain, went back to Australia. And that year, Herb was brought out by the moratorium movement, which was the anti-Vietnam right. movement. The Australian military was involved in the American war in Vietnam. And the Waterside Workers' Federation, uh, brought him out to speak to them. They were a Communist Party-controlled union in those days, and give an alternative perspective on Australian foreign policy, its relationship to U.S. imperialism. And Herb uh, gave a famous address as he got off the plane or the boat, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. Perhaps out of respect to the Waterside Workers' Federation, they pretended he'd gotten yeah. off the boat. And he was the first person they'd brought to Australia since Paul Robeson. That's right. Who would come in the 40s? Who spoke? Who spoke at the very same spot he was speaking, which is, was the biggest thrill for her. Yeah, and and you can see, I, I I imagine on YouTube, certainly footage of Robeson. The other thing I wanted to jump in there with is that uh, Rick mentioned Schiller's propensity to pull out a little cutting of the yeah. New York Times. There is, of course, also uh, a very fun avant-garde video collective that used to produce a program hey, called Paper Tiger TV. Herbert. Schiller reads the New York Times. Yeah, was their show, and you can mm -hmm. find these online. Yes, you and you can. wrote about that in the book also. Mm -hmm. So anyway, it was it was Schiller's perspective, historical, mm -hmm. critical, international, mm -hmm. that really had turned you on as an undergraduate and to communication. There, there were some close links between that and the work I was doing, uh, uh, you know, with the student newspaper. Well, it was the alternative student newspaper, the North Star. You can figure out where that came from, uh, and uh, just being on the left in this university, which was a very rich university. Most of the students who went there were very rich, except for the, uh, the, the, the students who got there on scholarship uh, and, um, and others. 
uh, actually, at, early in those days, the UC system was very affordable. I remember the first quarter I ever attended, it was $50, which does date me a little bit, but by that time it began to get a little more expensive. Um, so it was that, working the student newspaper, uh, we um, also did organizing against the uh, CIA coming onto campus to recruit um, uh, people of color, Latinos and, and others who they wanted to recruit and we, we managed to, um, to delay the entrance of the, of the CIA into the uh, administrative operations of the university. In the University of California system, all listeners will have heard of Berkeley and UCLA, which are the two most famous campuses. There are ten campuses, uh, and they are stratified by class. Uh, UCSD, the one in San Diego that Rick's referring to, is very much in the top three with Berkeley and UCLA uh, as a highly prestigious and wealthy uh, participant in this elite group of uh, three amongst the ten in the UC system continues to be very important. Uh, famous for oceanographic research, mm -hmm. medical research, mm -hmm. uh, supercomputing, yeah. as well as more fundamental, conventional, basic research and disciplines. Right. And, you know, I was saying part of the accidental intellectual story, when I was there before I left for Spain, some of my teachers included Fred Jameson. Uh, Herbert Marcuse was retired, the famous philosopher, but he would give lectures and everybody would attend them. They, they were the famous uh, theories of society lectures. Um, uh, Terry Eagleton was there as a visiting professor. Uh, uh, Carlos Blanco Aguinaga was there, uh, a very famous uh, Spanish uh, Marxist literary critic. Uh, it was just a wonderful time. Stanley Aronowitz was there, uh, it, and everyone at the same time. It was a, yeah. quite influential. and you know. When you're that young, you don't know who these people are, who they're going to be, but it, it really turns out to have been, again, just an accident. You know? yeah. And Frank Webster visited, didn't he? Frank Webster, yes. Very noted professor of communications and sociology, uh, who came and taught in the program yes. when you were present. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, what was it about the Madison people that five or well, ten years later... Well, again, this is a, an, uh, you know, an accident of history, because I had actually been accepted to McGill, University. Uh, I was going to do a competent degree in Montreal. Montreal, and I, I think Reagan was probably president at the time, and I think maybe bombing some countries. And I felt a little insecure about leaving my partner. I don't know what it was, so I walked over to the university in Madison and I spoke to David Bordwell, who was the graduate uh, advisor at the time, and I said, "I'd like to attend. Uh, this is what I'm interested in." And I applied, I filled out all the forms, uh, I was told I was accepted, then I got a note saying I wasn't accepted, so I went back and I talked to Bordwell, and he said, well, you know, you said you wanted to do international communications, well, the guy that did that, he just left for Alabama, sorry, we don't do that anymore. So I said, okay, I'll do anything. <laughs> uh, and you can see what a flake I must have been at the time, but the point was, I was interested in doing the graduate degree, and there were very good people working there, uh, including David Bordwell. So, whom uh, people may or may not know, but is one of the doyens of cinema studies or film studies, the author of many works inside both the analytic film tradition, the conventional film form and style tradition, but also interested in what he calls historical poetics, mm -hmm. and a very significant player in the application of Russian formalist ideas and anti-psychoanalytic psychological ideas to both the look and sound and storytelling of cinema and also the presumed cognitive processes undertaken by spectators. That's the footnote. Now the reality is that he was a cinephile, he loved movies, he loved popcorn, and he was really, he'd go see anything. You could talk to him about anything. Uh, he'd see any crappy movie that was out there. So, uh, you know, uh, including, you know, the, the, the great artworks that were out there too. So. Um, so I've been to Spain, I've returned to the United States, I'm in graduate school, guess what I study? I study Spanish media. I want to do some international research. I'm inspired by Herbert Schiller from my undergraduate times. I want to apply the, the uh, leftist critique, the, the idea of power structure, look into how that works in the transition to democracy. I, I develop some uh, research grants and I travel to Spain again and, and collect uh, archival work on the uh, on the transition that I lived through, but now looking at it from a, from an intellectual point of view, 
and a historian's point of view and a critical communication scholar's point of view, which, uh, which, it was it was interesting because I I, I didn't pull, rely on any of my personal experience at the time until I was actually writing and trying to remember the the, the, the what's hap what was happening on the street, uh, what was happening with the political organizations, the people I knew, the artists and others, you know, and trying to m mesh that with what I learned through the through the archival work that I that I did. So, so you know, you get you get that mix of structural change and on the ground how that's sort of um, expressed on the ground, and uh, and it became uh, a dissertation. Eventually, my first book on. Um, Spanish, uh, this transition to democracy is called the spectacle of democracy, and it's the political transition from the dictatorship to the democracy of, in Spain. So there's no herb for you to work with yeah. at University of Wisconsin. -Madison. I see where you're going with that. So, so you're, you're applying some of his ideas, yeah. your own experiences, and archival right. research and some further participant observation. You know, uh, maybe we should say also, when you're a graduate student, you have to create a, a, a committee of professors. They could be a, you know, a starting professor or you know, a long-serving professor, but you create a committee of professors to help guide you. And you've done coursework. This is one of the key things that's different from the United, about the United States from many other countries. Yes. You don't just sit down and write a hundred thousand Read and, and you, you tutorials. You might do four years of classes, for yes. example, quite conceivably. Yes. You might have to do a language exam yes. uh, to show that you have mastery of a language other than English yes. within your field, and then you're admitted to candidacy, which means you're at the position of, right. uh, in a sense, writing up your right. research. So you've had lots of time to get to know faculty, mm -hmm. but you've had to put together some people who, in a place that has just told you, we don't do international communication, right. so how did you do it? Well, I, I, I went down one floor, as we said, and the, the building we worked in was called Vilas Hall, and there were the communication arts program with rhetoric and theater and, 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 uh, and others was on one floor, and then one floor below was the journalism and communication studies people. So I would move between the two floors, and I found um, an old-time uh, international researcher who had done some work on, on UNESCO and the development in Venezuela, and um, he taught sort of mainstream international work and introduced me to a lot of the, um, you know, the sort of typical bibliography one needs to understand from, from that perspective, but mostly modernization theory and development communications. For more development communications, I would go to the agricultural school on the other side of campus. It was an agricultural school where they had animals and they taught animal husbandry, but that was also the place where they taught communication and development, communication for health campaigns, communication for uh, instruction of um, farm farming and that kind of thing. So I met a lot of international students on that side of campus yeah. as well and, and did some research on development. And, um, oh, the life of Brian. Yeah, so, so, so I, I basically cobbled it together on my own. Now, one of the things to know about the University of Wisconsin for people is that it's a what's called a land-grant university. Exactly. A number of uh, large tracts of federal land across the country were turned into universities as part, really, of Reconstruction mm -hmm. after the Civil War by the Republican administration. Mm -hmm. This is one of them. Many of them... Uh, Specialize and specialized in agriculture. Correct. This was everything from uh, finding clever ways to get market prices information out to farmers, which is why the University of Wisconsin is where radio almost began in the world, mm -hmm. uh, based at that university, sending out mm -hmm. price changes. Not just listeners. that, but also uh, scientific developments around seeds and seed. Uh, Absolutely. And, and you, you see the same, you know, University of Illinois, University mm -hmm. of Wisconsin, for years. Uh, rural Sociology's International Home was in Madison, and a lot of very radical thinkers, very important people passed through there, mm -hmm. many of whom worked on development issues. So uh, this would have been a, a, a was a fantastic opportunity and shows great agility on your part <laughs> to involve yourself with those folks. Thanks, Toby. I still see it as kind of accidental and stumbling around, finding my way. Stumble agility. Yeah. Stumbling agility. But, you know, as you said, there was no Herb Schiller. There was no... There was no one doing political economic analysis. There was no one doing international. So um, 
Eventually, I've, I met a young uh, scholar who had just been hired in the Communication Studies Department, Journalism and Communications Department, named Robert McChesney, and, and talked to Robert McChesney, and he, and he agreed to serve on my committee. So I was able to bring in, again, a critical political economy perspective. Um, Bob at the time hadn't done much work in the international, so I was still on my own for the most part. Um, so you had Bob, and then you had somebody from an absolutely other side of things, because you were also interested in cultural studies. Well, cultural studies was, you know, was British cultural studies was, you know, what one of the areas that was really inspiring at the time. The logical analysis, the study of, of youth cultures, this stuff that was coming out of out of Birmingham was really interesting to me, and, and uh, you know, it didn't quite mesh with what I was doing in my own research, but I still found it theoretically um, very very interesting. And we, we uh, managed to hire uh, um, someone who, at the time, had written a, a few really good books in that area. I was working in Australia named John Fisk. And when they brought him in full-time as a, as a professor to Madison at Communication Arts, I uh, asked him to be on my committee as well. So it was kind of, kind of a weird mix of, of people. I, I had geographers on my committee. I had Robert McChesney. I had uh, John Fisk. Um, and uh, Tom Streeter, who was there for the first couple of years I was there and then moved on to Vermont, uh, continued to serve on the committee um, tele, tele, com, through telecommunications, let's put it that way. We actually brought in his voice into the, into the final exam. So that's a remarkable combination of people because Tom Streeter can lay claim to having the first cultural studies PhD in the United States. In fact, <laughs> he, does, he does lay claim to that. It depends. I mean, because of the Illinois... Yeah, and he did yeah. it in 84, or mm -hmm. when he finished. Uh, I think he says he does, anyway. Well, uh, there's a whole strain of American cultural studies. We, you know, we could even say Stanley Aronowitz was already training people to do a sociological cultural studies uh, you know, thing, but it was, it, was, it was more American and not so influenced by the, by the British school as, as was... Uh, uh, Lawrence Grossberg in, in Illinois with Tom Streeter and others. So you had a remarkable combination of talents put together with quite a lot of methodological and maybe political differences. Yeah, I was really scattered is what you're saying. <laughs> this little person. Hello, Hello. you're walking very well. <laughs> it's fine until it all becomes a little more horizontal. <laughs> so scattered. Is that how it felt, or seems to? Absolutely, yeah. You know, I, I I see my my colleagues who graduate with a very clear view that they came from the Wisconsin school. Uh, you know, they were trained by Boardwell. They did cognitive studies, and they were, you know, I, I wouldn't say. Um, narrow. I mean, they really came. They followed a track that was established. Yeah. Uh, I derailed <laughs> many times, uh, and in, in a sense, that's why my work is so kind of eclectic in, in a way. I mean, you know, definitely um, approached from a Marxist point of view, um, a materialist point of view. I read across cultural studies. I found the, the work of Raymond Williams to be more appetizing than, than some other writers, especially in the later work he was when he was uh, doing work on um, questions of, of biology and science and, and looking more at the sociology of culture and kind of trying to make it more systematic. But I didn't have that, that kind of... Um, you couldn't identify me with, with the, the school. Uh, sort of like, you know, another classmate of mine was Henry Jenkins. Really... Uh, adopted and adapted the work of John Fisk and, and moved it along those same lines in a way. It was, it was a very stylistically coherent uh, uh, extension and methodologically coherent and theoretically coherent extension of John Fisk. I, would, I definitely would have, I mean, I'm off the track on that one. On that one. So this may be something you're bored with, but moving off the chronology for a moment, to ask you what you see as being the relationship between political economy and cultural studies, or what could be the relationship? Well, you know, I can't answer that question in a way that's going to satisfy the scholars who've identified themselves as one or the other. I can only say that the writers coming from the, from the cultural studies perspective have anchored some of their political and ethical commitments to a critique of political economy through uh, 
through whatever object of cultural expression they're looking at. And it may not have been a sustained analysis of the underlying political economic issues. That is the empirical political economy that, that, that inspired or provoked or angered them to, to do the work that they did. But it's there. And you know, I would, I would look for that in the work. If, if the work, if I find a, a cultural analysis has no connection to those, um, to those empirical areas of the political economy, to, to you know, push themselves a little bit to understand what the structural issues are, historical issues, to look at the, at the power structure and, and the, uh, the actors at all scales of, of power from the ground, from the everyday life to, to, the, uh, to the offices of the, of the most powerful bureaucrats and corporate captains of industry or whatever, if they don't make those connections, it's not interesting to me. Um, and you know, I, that's why I can't satisfactorily answer the question because I know that the work has value for those who are identified in those areas, just like it, it is in any discipline. And uh, what about from the other side? Are there times when you would like to see political economy a little more inflected with cultural Yeah, well, it depends which political economist you're talking about. I, you know, some of my dear colleagues in the political economy side uh, seem to be closed off to the cultural uh, issues, but they might be great pianists, great dancers. They might even have a sideline as artists and haven't made the connection about their freedom to express themselves uh, being uh, a function of the fact that they chose a profession that allowed for those moments of, you know, freedom. You know, to make those personal autobiographical connections, it, 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 they would see that, that there is, a, there is a, a room for that kind of cultural critique. But not, not all of them are that way um, but I've been I've been I've been asked many questions of why I, why we need to speak across those that divide I mean you know you and I both know it's that's old news there's no more discussion about the, the divide um, there used to be it used to be a big deal 15 years ago yeah 20 years ago mm -hmm. 25 years ago in fact if you look back at some of the struggles going on in Britain between two schools that have both been disestablished, the Leicester School and the Birmingham School, mm -hmm. both looking at television, both trying to treat it seriously, both interested in textuality, both interested in political economy, but one railing against textuality and the other railing against political economy, yeah. then it's been a struggle, a bifurcation, a division, a distinction, a binary that's keeps coming up, keeps cropping up yeah. at different times. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that every now and then you are still upbraided for being pessimistic. Well, you know, the, the, the recent shift to study creative industries, for example, you see a lot of cultural studies, uh, scholars, very important people in the history of cultural studies, moving into cultural policy and, and creative industries who well, and you know, I mean, you and I've published work together, and, and we're we're targeted by them as pessimists. Uh, the left, we're, we, I think, in a recent book by our friend John Hartley, we were part of that left-wing backlash against the creative industries because we've looked at the ecological or the environmental impact of those te of the technologies that drive those industries, and and that's seen as somehow or other anti. Uh, creative industries, or anti that work, or anti those those scholars and friends of ours, when in fact, uh, you know, we, we never, we didn't, we don't write because of what they're doing. Uh, so, it, you know, it's manifests itself in new ways, in, in new areas, but there's yes. a divide. Yeah. Yeah. Getting back to your scholarly trajectory, after the spectacle <laughs> of democracy comes out, or perhaps while you're writing it, I'm not sure, you start doing a lot of research on market research. Right. Could you tell us a bit about how you got into that and what things you learned? Well, uh, that, that began with um, uh, some research I was doing as a graduate student on the audience commodity. You know, Dallas Smythe, uh, a very famous, in fact, established the first course in the United States on political economy of communication at Illinois. Uh, worked for the FCC as a researcher, economic a researcher. Federal Communications Commission, uh, which is the regulator in the United States yes. of much of television, radio, and telephony. So, and, and Dallas had uh, developed this idea that um, that there's no there's no downtime, there's no leisure time when in in a com consumer society, in a capitalist society, because when when consumers are watching television or consuming media, they're actually working working for the uh, companies by, by the, their labor of being audiences. So he tried to establish a way to 
see where the monetary part comes in in Marxist way, where how you could consider that to be right. a form of exploited labor. Uh, you know, I think I think when in in that essay it was a graduate student essay. So uh, what I tried to do was to show that he fell short in in strict Marx strictly Marxist terms of looking for the wage side of the labor of m making an audience commodity. And I, I proposed at that time that you really have to look where people are actually paid to turn audiences into commodities. And, and that's why I became interested in marketing researchers. The people who do the act of identifying a particular act of viewing or reading or whatever and saying there's monetary value there. Uh, it's not the audience necessarily being waged, but it's a way of creating a monetary relationship between the activities of viewers and um, and how you know how how capital circulates through that economy. So you need market researchers to actually go out, or ratings firms like Nielsen to go out and say they're doing that now. Now pay us so that I can pay my you know stats people, my statisticians, some money. So when you find the wage relationship, I assumed because I was you know a boneheaded strict Marxist that way, you find the rela wage relation, you find how it's quantified, you can actually identify in, in, um, in more precise terms where the audience uh, commodity is created. And you also did some of this research in Europe Yes. as time went on. Well, it, it evolved into, into an interest in the people who did the monitoring of audiences. And I became very interested in the issues, you know, surveillance, um, and how that was being discussed in, in, in the European Union context with the emergence of new, um, new regulations or policies around the protection of personal data. I wanted to see how the marketing research industry was responding to, the, to those emerging laws. There was um, uh, a mandate to harmonize all the national uh, data protection laws. And so I traveled to France and, and Few places, Spain in particular, Germany, Germany uh, Italy, and you know, tried to just gather a kind of comparative uh, information on how these people were responding to it. Marketing researchers are very flexible in Europe. They're they're happy to put an opt out as the as the fallback, so that uh, uh, an opt in. I'm sorry, so that that so that consumers aren't automatically being tracked. They're happy to do that. Um, but because they they want to make accommodations for, for the regulations, as opposed to the American system where you're automatically being surveilled and tracked, uh, and, and you could opt out, but you have to find how to do that and make the phone calls. It's too difficult. Um, so I became interested in, in in the work of people who did the interviews. Um, so I interviewed interviewers too, and I'd sit down in the room with them and I'd talk about how how they'd bring themselves to ask intimate questions of research subjects. You know. Trying to figure out if they can sell that cigarette or that whiskey or that you know that uh, consumer good, um, and how they go about the process of, of kind of forgetting that they that they are also um, they're 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 part of that community. They could be interviewed as well. And so, do they want to? Do they like the idea of probing? And it became a sort of study of the ethics of of marketing research and the ethics of of that encounter, of trying to get information out of somebody else that says what they do with a particular commodity or media product or something like that. And that kind of work that those people do goes on, there's more of it probably than ever before, but privacy issues have shifted a lot now, haven't they, to things like uh, one's participation in social media and its monitoring by the hosts of the social media or the information that is sold on by right. those hosts to various corporations. Right. When I first started, so now everyone's interested in this privacy stuff. It's not yeah. an interest. It's in the newspapers all the time. Students yes. talk about it yes. in a way I found they didn't when you asked them about a public opinion pollster calling them and asking right. them what yogurt they telemarketers, ate or, yeah, or what they thought of a particular yeah. political candidate. I think when, when I started the research, there were many more telemarketers. There were many more you know, young people with clipboards going around and door-to-door -door asking questions. The, the digitization of the process hadn't become so uh, forceful at that point. And now, you know, you know, every time you click on something, the, 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 the keystrokes are, are tracked. The, you know, it can be, they claim it can, it's all anonymous. And there are ways to check that, but the point is that the tracking has become much more intensive. The same surveillance systems are there, the same structures of, of power 
that say who gets to know and who will never know, the same structures of power that get to say who controls your personal data are still there. It's just become much more intensive. And the flows of the information mean also the incredible growth of these databases. And any additional bit of information increases the value of those databases so that Facebook now can be sold for, uh, can, you know, can claim that it's worth whatever, $5 billion to, to, uh, to those one invest in it. But, you know, that's where the value of those places come from. The, the fact that the, the audience has been commodified, the users have been commodified, the process behind that requires that there be researchers collecting data, the databases themselves become the, the object of the, of the, the value building. Mm. Now, and interestingly, when a company goes bankrupt, those assets can go on the marketplace. So that the, the claims... The information that they've gathered about exactly. subjects. Exactly. So those claims uh -huh. where they say in their privacy policies that we won't sell to third parties, go out the window if the thing goes on the chopping block because those databases are the most valuable part of the of the deal. And, you know, a third company, a third party company can come in and easily... So it's the first thing that probably is saleable when assets have to be stripped. Facebook is, is, is nothing without those databases. Yes, yes. Google is nothing without their databases. Yes. Oh well, I mean, you know, they're moving into other areas. I mean, Google maybe an cars could be a utility. Could be a utilities, you know, sure. And also, of course, program creation. That yeah. we see Netflix, uh, which makes us pay as consumers at the same time as it sells data about us, is now becoming, of course, a so-called content provider. Yeah. Uh, now, I think I've got the chronology right here. After you've done a lot of this market research, the next big publication you have is you edit a collection called Culture Works, right. which I think of as an attempt to bring together these cultural studies, political economy wings in some sense. Yeah, that was a fun book to do. We, uh, we did it for the, I did it for the series in Social Text. I think you were on the, the, the editorial board or the editorial collective at that time. There was a, a collective and a committee I was on both and I was the editor of the series yeah. and the editor of the journal. Uh, with a succession of different people yeah. at that time. But the idea was really fun. The idea was to, to, to create a textbook. This one is a... Big dog walking by. The idea was to create a textbook for undergraduates that would have chapters on cultural aspects of their lives as students, but analyze that from a political economic perspective with some uh, suggestions for what you can do about it. So the chapters uh, included one on, on art, one on beer, one on sport, one on dance, one on the web, uh, you know, and, 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 the, and they, they worked differently, but the idea was that, you know, a student could read something that was going on around them in the college. Uh, and the beer chapter was actually a, a very popular one for a long time. Uh, and there was one on shopping as well. Um, and each of those chapters uh, attempted to provide some sort of political, economic description of what those cultural uh, experiences are, uh, where they come from, what's going on in the background. You know, it, it, it was written in, an, it was, I asked them to write in an accessible way, I asked them to, to deal with this in a, in a way that also leads to what you can do about it, or what, you know, how you can change the things so that students would end up feeling as though it's, it's not so gloomy or pessimistic. Yeah. So this is Culture Works, and it comes out 2001. Is that right? Something like that. Around yeah. that time. Uh, it's a terrific book. I highly recommend it. It has a somewhat tendentious cover. The marketing people at the University of Minnesota decided to put this um, this op art um, picture of the uh, oh the, the the artist's name escapes me at the moment. But there's there's a, a nude woman sitting on on a humongous a pack of. Uh, cigarettes and so I think they thought 18 year old boys would pick up the book buy it thinking there'd be more pictures inside or something I'm not sure sales actually were affected at all what Raymond Chandler calls a cigarette package and I've often wondered when cigarette package became cigarette packet in the same way as I've often wondered not even idly why men stopped wearing hats in Anglo-Saxon cultures in the 1940s or something. You know, since we're since we're having this uh, attention deficit moment, I also wonder why people stop whistling. And I realized since the Walkman and since uh, you know, a mobile uh, entertainment, people don't need to whistle. 
Have you ever noticed that? They sing along. They hum and they sing along. But people also sing in the United States in public without having audio aid. Maybe it's people... just me, but I miss whistling. Sure. Clark Gable whistled in a couple of his films. It was considered part of music, uh, diegetic music in Hollywood, fairly early in the 30s. and then There used to be professional music groups with a whistler. Yeah. My uncle, uh, uh -huh. my, my uncle Dick, my namesake. Was actually, he was actually in a band when he was young, and he was the lead whistler. Dick Max Whistler. No, Shannon Whistler. Dick Shannon Whistler. So, what happens after culture works? Oh, in your research, what areas do you? Well, a couple, this is when the, the Schiller book. A couple be of projects begin. The Global Hollywood book with you and um, and John and Nitin. We begin to uh, John McMaria and Nitin Goville. We begin to work on that, and um, and the and the Schiller book, both sort of at the same time. Uh, what were you trying to do with the Schiller book? Writing a book about a person, quite a different tack. Well, you remember when when Herb passed away, we were we were we were saddened and motivated to do something special, and and you offered the uh, journal you were editing, television and new media at the time, to a special issue, um, and. Uh, Herb had actually undertaken to write something for the very first issue of that journal and had to decline or pull out of that due to illness. Yeah. And then we did edit the special issue. With the special issue and um, that came out and then uh, Andrew Calabresi was editing a series for Roman and Littlefield contacted me and asked me if I'd be interested in, in doing an extended version of, of something of like an intellectual um, uh, biography, uh, you know, tracking the works and explaining to readers keeping the, the work alive in the, in the minds of readers. And, uh, and right now it's, I, I, it's being translated into Chinese and I hope will appear in China soon. Because um, uh, I think his work still resonates for anyone interested in the, in the global, doing an international analysis of the communication, I think the, his work still resonates and inspires. Yeah. Some people will know of uh, Angie Valdivia, originally a Chilean scholar but at the University of Illinois now and I remember Angie telling me that when she was doing graduate study I guess at UC San Diego in communications. Really? I thought she was at Illinois. Maybe you're right. I think she studied with her. Uh -huh. I may have got that wrong. Apologies to Angie's many Rosa, fans. Rosalinda studied with She did her PhD. Rosalinda Fregoso also yeah. studied with her. Uh, anyway, I remember Angie telling me that one of the things she found interesting was that when she went to conferences of International Communication Association and said she was a follower or a fan or a student of Herb's, mm -hmm. people would turn away from her. When she went to the International Association of Communication Research or any communications meeting in the Global South or the Third World of Western countries, people would flock to her right. to feel the gold dust that might have landed upon S her. Something like that, yeah. And just what, how different it was to see audience responses to Schiller anywhere but in his own country. Mm -hmm. So, good luck to that yeah, in, translation. In, in it's fact, a terrific the, book. the only time, uh, any, the only time anything uh, about Herb was published in the New York Times was his obituary. Is that so? Mm -hmm. He published many, many op-eds in uh, uh, Le Monde Diplomatique and, and other major newspapers around the world. Sort of like Noam Chomsky. Now, you, you know, if you want to read yeah. Noam Chomsky, you have to go to the Guardian and, and yeah. other places. Right. Yes, the, the New Yorker did this perilous profile of Chomsky three or four years ago. Astonishing denunciation. Quite yeah. incredible, really. There's a snootiness that is reserved for people on the Marxist left. And some of this relates, I guess, to the US Cold War tradition of anti-Marxist leftism. So strong yes. in this country. So knee-jerk, yeah. Uh, still, yeah. Where the words like conspiracy theorist uh, or orthodox Marxism mm -hmm. as a concept are epithets that really just mean we don't have to consider anything more this person has to say. So, okay, you, you do that, and you do the Global Hollywood book. Mm -hmm. So this takes us to about eight or nine years ago. We've yep. got about ten minutes left. Tell us the things that start to interest you then, because we've had these various phases of fascination with the Spanish transition, mm -hmm. uh, 
fascination with market research. Surveillance, privacy. Surveillance, privacy. Yeah. Uh, what has been the turn in the last decade for you? Well, as as your listeners have probably figured out that uh, th that there, I have derailed my work several times and gone off in different directions. Um, that's a warning bell for any young I, scholars. We, we didn't being plan. Sounded, we didn't plan that. Don't, don't do it. Don't. Do, you know, there. But for the grace of God, go. Yeah. You. I mean, if you had to look at my research, my research. Um, let's say my research project, the international work, continues. The concern with uh, bringing in sources that aren't from the usual suspects or the um, usual languages to try to um, bring in uh, surprising and startling ways of, of, of looking at the, the same problems that we've been studying for a while. The work with Global Hollywood with uh, the ideas that, that you developed with um, International Division of Cultural Labor and just thinking about how you can shift the emphasis toward labor and away from the, the, the texts and away from other things that still have the texts uh, in present is very important to me. The, um, the, the work in those books of the Global Hollywoods 1 and 2 on, on the market research is very interesting because you find out just so much about how the, these movies are sold, you know, based on totally bogus uh, uh, descriptions and reasons and ideas about what they are or how they get designed and invented based on totally bogus market ideas about what audiences want. And Where alleged research brings into being that which it supposedly yeah. describes. Yes, sometimes it's okay, you know, and sometimes it just sucks. Um, so that's that was fun, but the main thing, and you know this, the main thing has been the, just the, the sticking with the, the global, making sure we're not um, so provincial, um, focused narrowly on on what concerns American mainstream international mainstream communications and, and cultural studies. Um, and the English language speaking world as well, just trying to branch out. So deprovincialize. So, deprovincialize, yeah. Yeah. So the 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 last project, the last book is the Greening the Media that that's coming out in in April or May, uh, with the Oxford University Press. Uh, Toby and I wrote this book, originally meant to be a textbook looking at foundational issues in uh, media studies. Um, I was working on the, a chapter on technology, and I was going to just write up a synthesis. Uh, on how um, you know the field has dealt with the foundational problems of media technologies, and I started with one that I thought was just obvious, which was the environmental impact, because I knew that uh, some of these technologies actually, you know, are discarded mindlessly, that they're full of poisons, and that there was you know some work on electronic waste. The European Union was developing um, uh, laws around uh, electronic waste. What I found was that in the fields of media studies, cultural studies, film studies, there was absolutely nothing. I think maybe Lisa Parks and one other person had done some work on how to discard your computer, but there was really no scholar who wears the hat of media studies or cultural studies who considered the material physical impact on the environment. There's this whole area of McLuhanite uh, work in media, it's called media ecology. It was extended by Neil Postman at NYU. They even offered PhDs in, in media ecology, but it had nothing to do with the ecology um, per se. It had nothing to do with the with the physical environment. So um, the book that we originally planned to do became something completely different, and uh, we ended up expanding the idea into. Uh, into a full-fledged, uh, full-fledged uh, book-length project, and that's where we're now uh, working in, in looking at labor issues having to do with uh, the production and and destruction of these uh, technologies, the the chemical burden, the biophysical uh, impact, um, and trying to just push that into the field and trying to get, uh, uh, trying to ask our colleagues to become more aware of this and see it as a fu really fundamental, a foundational issue that should go forward into the curriculum of media studies and cultural studies. How do you find the reaction of colleagues and of pupils or students to this? Well, uh, you know, you've had this experience. The, the people who are established in the field are skeptical. They don't want to make that shift into a new area, even though you might have, we might have made the argument successfully that this is fundamental and important and it won't go away. The students, the young people uh, who we talk to are 
very excited about it. They're angry about it. They 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 wonder how they've never heard about it. They they wonder why the media don't talk about it. Of course, we have political economic explanations for that. Um, and you know they're they're keen on becoming green consumers. And you know that's a good start. Uh, so it's been very interesting uh, to see this. Uh, you know, it's just something that Rick and Toby are working on. So you, I think I'm right in saying, have a course where you teach some of this. I, Is that right? Yeah. Well, I've I've developed a course on media and the environment, and uh, I teach it now as a as a third component in my political economy right. intro to political economy. My my sense is that normally, that kind of course or approach or title means media coverage of environmental debates. Right. That's an important aspect of it, and I think. Um, I think you and I need to do more uh, work to link that up to what we're doing. But the it's 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 not about texts yet. It really is much well to the extent it's about the the journalistic descriptions of the environmental impact. Not really. We can use that to talk about what's going on. Very good scientific journalism on electronic waste. Um, Elizabeth um, Grossman's work is very uh, good. So you know, high tech trash. High tech trash. You know, books, the work, work the like book. that are very important sources for us. But um, in the classroom, it's really about holding that that phone in your hand and telling you, you know, there might be 200 different toxic elements in there, and the science isn't yet developed to tell you how that's going to affect the environment once it's thrown away. What do you want to do about it? And you know, just to ask them to think: Do we really need to have this kind of technology, or is there a way to? Create new designs, and you know, spark ways of thinking about the transformation of the of the media industries toward a greener and more sustainable uh, future. And speaking of science, how has it been for you trawling through literature that is produced in environmental studies, uh, in electrical engineering, chemical engineering, epidemiology, yeah. public health, and so forth, to understand the impact on workers, on consumers on post-consumption recyclers and so forth? Well, it hasn't been easy. I, you know, really, it's been a, a five years of a shift in... It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's another graduate education, let's put it that way. I've just, again, derailed myself onto this, into this sideline, and uh, maybe it's because I, don't, I haven't followed a track that it was, it was uh, easier to dedicate myself to, to pulling back and learning. And, uh, it's learning the language, learning what toxicologists are saying, learning what the um, life cycle assessment researchers do, learning what uh, the environmental researchers are talking about, uh, computer manufacturing and semiconductor manufacturing, just to understand chemicals better uh, and what they do uh, as a, as to our bodies and the, uh, you know, the epidemiological language and issues that are, that are at stake. You really have to learn a new vocabulary and to accept the, you know, the fact that you're um, you're in the introductory class again, and that you really have to, you know, take, you know, take it step at a time, and and, and double check and triple check that you're doing it right. And I, and I confess, I'm still learning. And I do hope that that people who read this book, who know better than than us, tell us so that we can improve our approach. But that's not going to stop me. I think it's really important. It's uh, it's it's a materialist approach. It's the stuff I've always been doing. We're looking at it on a global scale. We're looking at the differential impact on different uh, peoples across this, this this planet, and and we're seeing the same old stuff we saw when we did communication studies in the 70s. You know, this what they call the digital divide, but also there's a, a divide in terms of the impact, the chemical burdens, the way that workers are exploited. And we've seen this recently now in the headlines with Apple and the Foxconn uh, debacle. So. Um, it's it's the same stuff. It's a different area. We should have been looking at it a long time ago, and that's the only thing I'm really upset about is that I didn't think about it sooner. And of course, by media here, one isn't only talking about these latest and greatest, because media include books, films, and so forth. Right. There's a history that goes back centuries. That's right. Relevant. Right. And and you and actually you can look at the. I mean, today we talk about converging technologies, but you can see a convergence a uh, hundred years ago of technologies uh, in print and film, for example. The same baseline technologies were there um, in, in the use of cellulose. So 
there's a way of, of looking at, at, at these uh, links that have been there for a long time. And so it's not just the new technologies, it's not just the electronics. Um, we can go back to Gutenberg and start from there if we had the capacity to do that. And, and hopefully the book inspires uh, students who want to do media history to actually um, rethink historiography from an ecological perspective and really push themselves to try to find documents. Uh, you know, work that's out there on chemical burden that was uh, the legacy of these technologies for the last 500 years. It's, it's possible, this, the record keeping has always been an issue and we, you know, you dump the stuff, nobody sees it, and nobody keeps a record, maybe that's the way it's going to turn out. Well, we certainly hope not. Uh, Rick Maxwell, thank you very much for coming into the pod today in South Pasadena. Just as you have opened your vocal cords, so the sun has burst through the clouds in the last half hour or so. Uh, it's been great having you here, and I hope you'll come back and tell us about your adventures in the future. Anytime.